0: The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. You bass fishermen, God bless you, not interested. I'm not into the warm water fish, the little bluegills and stuff like that. I don't want that. I want cold water, hard to catch, fly fish, trout, steelhead. That's what I'm into right there. And only fly fish. I don't even know how to fish any other way. And I love fish. I love the feel of them, the look of them, the texture of them. And people all the time will say, so do you bring them all home? And the answer is rarely. This right here is a picture of the second largest trout I've ever caught in my life. The largest trout I ever caught in my life was technically in private water, which a lot of people who are purists would discount because they'd go, oh, he probably feeds them. So I don't even count that one. This was a 29 and a half inch rainbow trout, huge fish, gorgeous fish. And legally, I had every right to take it home. But as far as I know, hope, that fish still swims in Klamath Lake today. And people go, how would you do such a thing? You could have took that thing home. You could have stuffed it or you could have cooked it or whatever. But I love animals. And so there's something in the thrill of the catch, but just as pleasurable to me as the trophy shot and the release and watching that big fish swim away. In fact, this will gross some of you out. I've kissed the fish before. Like a little bit of just respect, like, good luck to you, buddy, and sent them on their way. I love fish. You know what I love more than fish, though? I love dogs. Any dog people in the room in here, too? I love dogs. This is my boy right here. Can you put Asher up? This is my boy. (laughs) Now, uh, I love this dog. This is a puppy. He's seven and a half months old. It's a -a sheep-a-doodle, which is hard to be manly and say (laughs) sheep-a-doodle. But he doesn't shed, and he's like the greatest dog. And I love this dog. I absolutely love this dog. In fact, we actually, in our household, um, to, much to my wife's chagrin, we have three dogs. We, we have this dog, and then each of my daughters has a little bitty dog. None of them shed, which is an amazing thing for dogs. you got to love that. I love dogs. Asher goes everywhere with me. He's in my office as we speak. I pray not destroying it. He goes everywhere. I was even tempted to just have him come on in here with me, but we're not going to do that. I love this dog. But as much as I love animals, the grandeur that I see when I look at a bald eagle, when I get to hang out with my dog, or when I catch a huge fish or steelhead out on the Rogue River, as amazing as all of those are, we are not the same as animals. They do not hold a candle to, for example, human life. My children will never come close to being on the same level as the greatest animal on the face of the earth. If the white rhino goes down to one, my daughter is more valuable than the white rhino. This is always the case. Humans have been put in a completely different position than the animals. This is a biblical truth. We are not equal to any of them. We have been made in the image of God. No other animal has this. No other animal on earth has a conscience. No other animal on earth deals with the moral issues and reasoning that we do. And this is found in the scriptures. Genesis 1 verse 26 says this. Then God said, let us make man in our own image and after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the bird of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is referred to as the Imago Dei. It means we are created in the image of God. We have a moral compass that animals don't. Now, we would love to think that animals have that. You'll hear people say things all the time, my dog just loves me, my dog, all these kind of things. And I I used to think that too, but when I got Asher and I bought this book, it's kind of the go-to book on training a dog. It's called The Art of Raising a Puppy. And it's actually written by a group of monks somewhere up in the Northeast that like, part of what they do is they raise German shepherds and sell them off. And this has become the de facto expert book on raising puppies. And in this book, they say the following, Despite what most people assume, dogs do not have an innate desire to please their owners. This popularized bit of wisdom is simply not true. Your dog has a natural desire to please herself, to receive pleasant sensations. She is quite capable of learning how to bring those about. She must be taught to associate pleasing you with something pleasant to herself, with receiving praise and affection. This inspires her to work diligently for that reward. So what they're saying here is dogs don't even have that same moral compass. They're not in it to please you. They're not in it. Though they do bring us joy and there will be things that they do at times that seem that they're serving us, they're not. We've taught them that. And we've taught them that through either fear of punishment or through reward. But in either case, it's self-interest that are involved, that are motivating what our animals do. When a lion kills a, a deer out on the plains, he doesn't go to bed at night and go, I really have a problem. That I shouldn't have did that. And When he's got blood all over him and you watch on Animal Planet and go, oh, the poor deer. He has no issues at all with what he just did. And when he's done, he's gonna think about the next one. No animals have that same moral compass that we do. They don't wonder about their future. They don't plan, they're thinking the next meal, instant pleasures, and that's it. Now, mankind is created differently. We're given an ability to reason that's different, we're forward-thinking, or we should be in many ways, we have worries and fears that others don't have, and we have a moral compass about ourselves that is completely different. We've been born with moral entities that are often referred to as souls, We've been born with souls. So what does the Bible say about us as humans? Or specifically, we would call this what? Personhood. What does the Bible have to say about the personhood of humans? Well, I've got a couple of Bible verses I want to share with you. The first is Psalm 58.3. It's not this one just yet, Sam. Not yet. I forgot this. We don't have a slide for this one, so we'll live. Psalm 58.3 says this. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. The Bible says this, the wicked are born wicked. They go from birth in wickedness, in sinfulness, that that there is a fallen nature that all humans have that is in place at least at birth, from the very beginning. He even goes on to say this, Job 14.4 says, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean thing? There is not one. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean thing? So let's put it this way. How many people here would say their parents never sinned? Nobody. Then what that means by default is you too. That's what it's saying. You can't take fallen sinful men and then expect that this clean thing has come from them. In other words, the sinful nature that men have is passed on through childbirth. We're born with that. And that's why we need the gospel, by the way. Uh, we need the gospel to save us as sinners, not because we do things wrong, but because of who we are, broken, fallen sinners by nature, helpless. But you go, okay, that still doesn't answer the question, Jeff. So, okay, men are born with sinful natures. That still doesn't really nail down the whole issue of personhood. And the real question in the world today, especially regarding abortion, is what? When does life begin? That's the issue, right? Right? When does life begin? When does cells inside a woman's body become an actual person? And there's a debate on that. Oh, it happens at birth. It happens when certain features are developed. There's all kinds of debate on when personhood, if you will, or life actually occurs and takes place. Well, the Bible has comments regarding that too. Psalm 51.5 says this. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. In sin did my mother conceive me. According to the Bible, when does the soul, that moral entity inside a person, that broken, fallen, sinful nature part of human identity, when was that inserted, if you will? When does that come together with human tissue? When does that come together with, with actual physical um, flesh, if you will? psalm says, in sin did my mother conceive me. The biblical standard for when personhood and flesh come together is always conception. There's not another defensible biblical, now we'll, we'll get to the science part in a minute, okay? Just what does the Bible say? That's what we're saying right here. There's no other defensible position using Scripture that you can hold to other than to say the Bible clearly says life begins at conception. This is important. Psalm 139 verse 16 says, your eyes, listen to this, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet none were there. Hear that again. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book was written, every one of them the days formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. In other words, we would say God had a plan for that life before the first day of that life had ever even happened. Before the form, if you will, of that life had even been solidified, God had a plan. It goes on, Psalm 139, which is a crucial text for this particular issue. Psalm 139, verse 13, I think we have the text for this one, says this. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. That is a powerful, important text. To consider this text has three huge implications. The first one is this it's amazing. I mean, the, the goal even of this text is for us to stop and gasp and worship. He says, Listen, God formed you. Even in the biblical account of creation, God speaks everything into existence, but when he gets to man, his method changes. It says, He formed man. We were created differently than everything else on earth. And he says here, even in the womb God was knitting me together, there was a work being done, God's work, not just some accidental cells coming together, but God doing a work inside the womb of the mother. And it's amazing because he's saying here that God himself has fearfully and wonderfully made us. And that should the first uh, um, implication of that is we should just be amazed. Like when you hold a baby, you should be able to look at that and just be amazed at what God has done. I mean, we look at iPhones and go, wow, look what they can do. There is no technology on the face of the earth that even scratches the surface of what God has done when he created man and woman and life. Not even close. Even in the animals, we can go, that's pretty impressive. We can't do that. But that doesn't even touch the issues of the soul or reasoning or any of those things. God is a masterful builder and architect and his cream of the crop, the peak of all of his invention, if you will, is humanity. And so when we hold a baby in our arms, when we look even at one another. It's hard to believe when we look at some of us, but when we look at one another, we should be in awe at what God has done. But there's other implications. The second one is this. We should have a very high view of all life. Forget for now the argument of when does life begin. Just life in general, we should have a really high view of that. When we hear about people dying because of ISIS or, or any of those kind of things, the, the atrocities that occur throughout the world, when we hear about those things, that should affect us. Like we should have a high view of life because man has been created in God's image and it is the pinnacle of God's creative order. And then the third one is this. This has massive implications on how we view abortion. Now, disclaimer time. Um, some of you might go, I can't believe they're starting with this one. It's like first week, Jeff, and it's first week of the Juana's and you know numbers numbers kind of fade away over time and it would have been a smarter move for church growth to do abortion later. You start out with this one, you're just going to scare people off because it's a huge political issue. And here, here's the reality of it. First of all, the timing of this, I believe, is, is the Lord's for all sorts of reasons. Um, number one, today, unbeknownst to us today, a congressional hearing began regarding Roe versus Wade um, in Washington, D.C. A gal testified today who will be um, actually speaking this year at the Rogue Valley, um, or what do we call it? Is it the Medford or Rogue Valley Resource Center? It's the Medford Pregnancy Center here in town. They have a benefit coming up in October. She's going to be speaking there. She's a survivor of abortion. Um, she survived a saline abortion. The doctor didn't happen to be in the room when the when the, when she was removed, and the nurse noticed um, it's alive, and she actually survived. And now she's, she testified today. So there's a, a ton of stuff. I mean, my goodness, the news regarding all these videos that have come out, I guess you would have to... I don't even think you could live under a rock and not know what's going on with regards to the videos regarding Planned Parenthood. But actually, that's not totally true, right? Because most of the news isn't covering him. Isn't that what we're finding out? Um, But videos have been released that are showing that Planned Parenthood is taking um, aborted baby carcasses, uh, body parts, organs, and selling them off to different companies for research and for all sorts of things, profiting off the sale of actual body parts. And some of these videos, if you haven't watched them, please go watch them they're shocking seeing some of these these people laughing about yeah well we got to set our price cuz cuz i want a lamborghini I mean, horrific things that are going on, but but this is going on in the news. And then even this weekend, it just turns out that a a good friend of ours, some of you guys have known for a long time, named Jeffrey Gilbert, uh, now works with an organization. He was a drummer for Cutlass for a long time in seven places. Um, He's going to be with us this Sunday, Um, just happens to be in town this very week, and he works with an organization now called Save the Storks, which actually builds buses that goes to different places to do free ultrasounds for women so that women can actually see um, what their baby looks like before they go and consider um, abortion. Um, Cindy could probably correct me on the stats on this, but I want to say something like 87 to 90% of women who actually have ultrasounds see the picture of their baby. Don't go get abortions after that. What's that number? That I was right? Yes. All right. ENFP got a detail right. That's awesome. So, um, so anyway, he's going to be here to share about what's going on with that organization and what they're doing. So just the Lord seems to have knit a lot of this stuff together. But, but here's one of the primary reasons why we can talk about this right now. It's not a political issue. It's a moral and biblical issue that has been politicized in other areas, but it is not a political issue. And people object, no, it it is, dude, it is. It's just, this has already been settled. The science of all of this has already been settled, and you church people are just arguing with scientists. And This is the one area that I can think of. Like, we might not get a lot of credit with regards to evolution in certain circles and all this kind of stuff, but this is the one area where clearly science is rapidly proving the case of the pro-life movement. Um, In fact, and I'll get to this a little later, I actually believe that Probably in our lifetime, we may see Roe versus Wade actually overturned because the science is irrefutable. It's absolutely irrefutable. The problem is it's falling on deaf ears and, and the argument's changing. So, so let, me, let me give you an example. I really believe that if we had the science today, that they had in 1973, when Roe v.ersus Wade was enacted, um, I really believe that there would be no such thing as abortion in America, right? now, not, not legal abortion anyway, um, because at that time we did not have the kind of sophisticated sonograms and 3D ultrasounds that we have now, where we could like you know see babies' facial expressions, see smiles, see frowns, see some of these kinds of things. Um, and here's just some stuff. I gave you guys a, a, a piece of paper. I'm not going to walk all the way through this, but, but I really encourage you guys to take a look at some of this stuff. This is, this is inarguable science about fetal development, okay? At eight weeks, we're, I'm not going through them all, but just up to eight weeks. At eight weeks, your wife's still probably throwing up, guys. Still probably dealing with morning sickness, okay? At eight weeks, all major organs in that child are functioning, Babies can suck their thumbs. There's a fingerprint. They can hear. Let me say that again. They can hear. At eight weeks, they can hear. They can respond positively and negatively to sounds they hear. There's brain waves that are detectable. There's ongoing and current research that seems to be proving they can dream At eight weeks old, they're dreaming. Think about that. The nervous system is already forming. There's research previously that said it's not until week 12 that the baby can experience pain, but new research is coming out now and saying by week eight, the fetus experiences, reacts to, and feels pain because they have a complete nervous system already there. Maureen Condrick, she's a PhD, Associate Professor of Neurobiology and Anatomy at University of Utah, PhD from University of California, Berkeley, widely published scientist whose works have appeared in a wide variety of peer-reviewed journals. She said this, The neural circuitry responsible for the most primitive response to pain, the spinal reflex, is already in place by eight weeks of development. This is the earliest point at which the fetus experiences pain in any capacity. Eight weeks. Two months. Two months. That means that there, and there's, there's science behind it. There's like research that shows us that, that there's infants, babies, they call them fetuses, babies inside the womb recoiling when doctors are required to go in utero and do different procedures like blood draws to find out viability and all sorts of things. They see the baby recoil as if that hurts. Eight weeks, they feel that. And the sad thing is, is nearly all, of the one million abortions committed in the United States last year took place after that. All of them. Nearly all of the vacuum tubes that went inside and sucked baby bodies apart, dismembered them piece by piece, took place after that moment. That's got to be gut-wrenching. That's got to be heartbreaking for us to understand that. And here's the sad thing. Oregon is worst of all. I gave you guys a chart here. This piece of paper shows you what the restrictions are regarding abortions in the United States. The state listed at the top is the one in which it is the most difficult or they have the most restrictions preventing someone or loopholes to jump through, whatever you wanna call it, in order to gain, um, to have an abortion. And you can see the categories here on the right, total abortion bans or limits on public financing, scarcity of providers, all the way down to waiting periods or mandatory counseling. Oregon, on the bottom, zero. They do not have, a school can take your child to a doctor to have an abortion done and not even tell you until they bill your insurance. And you'll have to pay for it. That is the law in Oregon. There are no restrictions on abortion, but they'll make sure that your insurance covers it. This is the state that we live in. And by the way, a lot of people are under the myth, I, I was to some degree, that this whole issue, it's been a hot button thing for a while, partial birth abortions. That those are illegal, right? Because we had a partial birth abortion ban act thing that happened a while back and all that stuff. It's not true. It's not banned in every state. And Oregon's one of them where it's legal. Do you know what a partial abortion actually is? Let me read to you. A partial birth abortion is a procedure in which the abortionist pulls a living baby feet first out of the womb, And into the birth canal, except for the head, which the abortionist purposely keeps lodged just inside the cervix. The abortionist then punctures the base of the baby's skull with surgical scissors or a long, hollow metal tube called a trocar, if I'm pronouncing that right. He then inserts a catheter into the wound and removes the baby's brain with a powerful suction machine. This causes the skull to collapse, After which the abortionist completes the delivery of the now dead baby. Legal in Oregon. All done after eight weeks in which we know scientifically babies have fingerprints. They can hear. They hear the sound of the instruments coming. And it's legal. And this is where we live. And then people will go, you know, there's always the whatabouts. What about rape? And what about incest? and All that stuff. And And we'll just set that aside for the night. The the vast majority, the infinite majority of abortions that take place in our culture have nothing to do with rape or mother's life in danger or any of that. The number one reason abortions happen is convenience. I'm not ready. I didn't mean to. I got different plans for my life. Not now. I can't do this yet. That's the number one reason. That abortion takes place in our culture with the incredible exaltation of self. I don't know that there is a better example than this. Now, what are the arguments for abortion? What are the, the arguments that people say, well, this is why we should do this because it seems like the science is catching up to it. And so, so they've said things, there, there's, it's called the uh, SLED argument. Some of you guys ever heard of this, the SLED argument for abortion? Nobody, good, listen up carefully. Here are the arguments. Number one is size. It's an acronym, SLED. Number one is slot, size. They say well, it was just too small. Fetuses are just too small to be considered actual people. Um, but <laughs> who decides that? Does that mean that Shaquille O'Neal, because he's 7'3", has more viability or more worth as a human than a little person, for example? Um, Or do we gain worth as individuals as we grow? Who decides such a thing? And where's that line? Who draws that line? The second one is L, -L S-L-E-D, L is level of development. So, well, it's just not developed enough to be considered a life. But, I mean, who draws that line? I mean, what about a four-year-old is nowhere near as developed as an 18-year-old? Well, usually, usually. <laughs> so so how, how does that work? And, and what are the minimal developmental things that have to be in place before we consider them alive? Because at eight weeks, fingerprint, DNA, their own blood type, which is usually different than the mother's. I mean, how, how are those things not qualifying? And, and what about people that are developed and then as they grow old, they get things like Alzheimer's? When they seem to regress in development, how should we view some of those things? Um, the next one, e, environment. They say well, it's not a person because it's in the womb; it's not out yet, which is a ridiculous argument. Can I just say, eight inches is the difference between human and not in the womb. Not a human. Thirty seconds later, or however long, eight inches. It moves through. Suddenly, it's yeah, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It's just ridiculous. Um, And then the last one, degree of dependency. Um, But what about the handicapped? I I used to work at a mission, some of you in this room have been there too, at, at a mission where the children that we took care of, up to even in their 20s, some of them, were totally dependent on us. If we did nothing for them, they would die. They could not feed themselves, they could not care for themselves in any way, shape, or form. So how would that be any different? And and not only that, then let's forget the handicap all along. Babies, when they are born, and everyone says, "Oh, it's absolutely alive." That's a that's a birth. Totally dependent, are they not? Sometimes annoyingly so dependent, but absolutely dependent. So, so what do we do with all this stuff? The, the reality is this: the science of personhood is inarguable. It just is, and and the science that's out there is getting faster and faster and more and more. This is why I, I actually believe and have hope. I'm not the only one that will see Roe versus Wade overturned in our own lifetime because the science will get to, to the point where you just can't possibly argue against it. Um, but it won't keep people from arguing. And let me show you where the debate goes. This is Horrifying. Mary Elizabeth Williams, she's a social commentator and writer for Salon, New York Times, and more. She's appeared on MSNBC, Today Show, NBC News, many, 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 many more. Um, She wrote an article in January of 2013, and the title of the article, some of you may remember this, So What If Abortion Ends Life? This is the name of her article. And uh, I got a couple of quotes I want you to see that. Sam, could you put the first one up? This is what she wrote. Yet I know that throughout my own pregnancies, I never wavered for a moment in the belief that I was carrying a human life inside me. I believe that's what a fetus is, a human life. And that doesn't make me one iota less solidly pro-choice. So the whole argument of what's a life and when's not, she's not wrestling with that. She was completely convinced, and this is a leader in the pro uh, pro-choice movement She's completely convinced that what she had inside her was a life didn't matter she goes on to say and this is worse yet if you'll put the next one up here's the complicated reality in which we live all life is not equal That's a difficult thing for liberals like me to talk about, lest we wind up looking like death panel loving, kill your grandma and your precious baby stormtroopers. Yet a fetus can be a human life without having the same rights as a woman in whose body it resides. She's the boss. Her life and what is right for her circumstances and her health should automatically trump the rights of the non-autonomous entity inside her, period, always, period that's insane. That's psychotic. Because what she's saying is this, I know it's a person, I know it's a human, I have no argument with that, but my rights trump that one, which gives me the right to kill it, period, always. That's horrific. This just shows how seared the conscience of so many people has become. And it's the rights of the woman, and look, I you got to hear me on this always women's rights women's rights and when you start to argue about this kind of stuff it becomes yeah I even saw a thing today where it said let's look at all of the senators and congressmen who vote against um, uh, who vote against uh, uh, Roe versus Wade who want to overturn it and it was a picture of all of these white haired mostly white men. And the comment on it was, what's, what do we see? What's in common here? And then went off on this long diatribe about, because they're men, they have no right to say anything about this. It's the woman's body. It's the woman's right. And she has certain sovereign rights over her own body, and everyone does. But this is not true. There's a reason prostitution's illegal. Like, you can't just do whatever you want with your own body. None of us can do that. We can't go just shoot up drugs anywhere we want. There are laws in our own country that say this is not just bad for you, but this is bad for society as a whole. So none of us have sovereign rights over our own body. And that's not even getting into the reality that we are created by God who has sovereign rights over everything. And so to be able to say, my rights trump your rights, therefore you can die, I mean, is that, is that not what we got from the Holocaust, from Pol Potts, from China, Stalin? I mean, this is the same kind of things that happen all the time. And, and the argument is, it's the woman's body. Fine, it's the woman's body on the outside, it's the baby's body on the inside. That's not the woman's body. That is a completely separate DNA, separate fingerprints, usually separate blood type inside. The location thing may have something to do with it. There is no such thing as being able to say that we can kill the baby because it's the woman's body. It's not the woman's body. It's the baby's body. It dreams. It has dreams. It hears sounds. This is not an argument of person's rights over their own body. and We are not sovereign over our own bodies. We're just not, and we don't want it that way. This is just the reality. Now, odds are, again, one in four women they say have had abortions in our culture right now, one in four. And so that means that the odds are there's people in this room that have this in your history. And this is where we get to bring this back again and we remember that God has done his most masterful work in the darkest possible situations. And throughout the scriptures we see example after example after example where God has used men who were men who were murderers. Moses killed a man with his bare hands. David took a woman away from, his, from, a, from a man, sent him off to be murdered, an adulterer and a murderer. Saul, Paul, who, who wrote the very text that we started out with in Corinthians, was the lead charge, let's go get him, general, if you will, whose only purpose in life was to wipe Christianity off the face of the earth. He was blood all over the hands of this man. And yet these are people who, when submitted to God, repenting of sin were used by God in mighty ways who experienced the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. So do we get passionate about this stuff? Yes, we have to. We have to. Does that mean you're outside the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ? Absolutely not. And again, my plea is to you that you would understand that maybe it's by the very sovereign act of God that you're in this place right now feeling difficulty, feeling uncomfort, guilt, whatever it is, because God is wooing you to himself because he understands the pain. He understands the difficulty. He knows what you're going through and he loves you. He wants to forgive you, heal you, use you. And by the grace of God, one day in eternity, reunite you with that baby. That's the beautiful thing about our Lord. But what is the Christian response? If we're to say, okay, here's this issue. How should we as Christians look at this issues?" Ephesians 5, which we'll get to. We're in Ephesians on, when, on Sundays. We're starting chapter 3 this week. So Ephesians 5.11, we should get to. Um, Roe versus Wade might be overturned by the time we get to Ephesians 5.11. <laughs> Amen, that would be great, right? Um, but this is what it says. Ephesians 5.11 says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Now, now I've said before, I think the science of this is going to end up causing Roe versus Wade to be overturned. I really believe so. I don't think it'll be without a fight. I think the consciences that have been seared and the, the real uh, reality of the issues and the money behind it and all this stuff is going to make it complicated. It's probably going to take a while, but hopefully in my lifetime we See this happening. Even today, by the way, do you know today was the Apple unveiling for all their devices? Did you know today they even unveiled an app and device that would allow you to do fetal monitoring with your cell phone? So the science of this stuff is coming fast. And I think it's just, um, uh, just a matter of time before that gets overturned. But here's the thing we have an option. We can sit back and just wait for that to happen, or we can understand the reality that God has chosen to work in this world through people, through the church. God's chosen to do this. And, and if you think back, like we, we in our lifetime, one of the things that can get compared to a lot when you're talking about the weak that have been maligned and pushed aside are, for example, Jim Crow laws and segregation and slavery in our own lifetime. I'm from the South. I grew up in North Carolina. My family is all from the South. The farthest away from the South that my family that I'm aware of ever lived was some of my dad's family lived in Kentucky, still in the South, right? Right? My family came over from England on a boat during the 1400s or 1500s. Like they were settlers, the whole deal. My family, very rooted in the South. And I can't help but wonder. Like my, I got a lineage of pastors in my family. I wonder what they were doing during the Jim Crow laws. When our government was doing censuses, trying to count people for tax purposes and all this kind of stuff, and they decided we'll count black men and black women as three-fifths of a person, I wonder what they thought. Did they just sit back, wait for that to change, hope it went different? Did they participate? Were they in favor? Or did they stand up and make a difference? What were they doing? What were Christians doing, for example, in Germany? Now, there's some bad examples of what some of the church in Germany was doing. There's some bad ones. There's a a phrase maybe you've heard before. It's called, sing a little louder. Um, There's a story that was told about a church. It was a Christian church in Germany, and it was right by the train tracks, right near where one of the actual uh, um, concentration camps were, where Jews were being killed by the millions. And they would be in worship services many times as the trains were pulling up. And they said they could hear the cries of the Jewish people inside the trains as they were in the church worshiping. And you know what their response was? They would sing louder and sing louder to try to drown out the sound of what was going on. What was the church doing when ashes were falling on houses? Now, there were people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer and others who were doing incredible works, trusting in God, seeing what was going on and saying this is not okay and allowing God to work through them. But what about us? Forty years from now, if I'm right, and Roe versus Wade gets overturned in our lifetime, 40 years from now when your great-grandchildren are talking to you, they're going to look at us as barbaric and disgusting that this went on in our lifetime. Knowing the science we know now, Dad, how could your generation have let that happen? How could you have done that? What what did you do, Dad? And what will our response be? We waited. We waited. We ignored. We sang louder. No, I believe that there's four things that we need to do for sure. Number one is this, we need to repent. We need to repent for not caring enough. I mean, think about it. How much were we really thinking about this before the news stories with Planned Parenthood kicked back in here just recently? I mean, how much are we moved? Have we become numb to the reality that it's just sort of always been this way and probably always will? Do we share God's heart? Do we hear the crying in the trains when they go by? Or do we just ignore it? No, we need to repent and ask God to break our hearts and again, recapture us that we might view this. Again, this is the idea worldview. A Christian should view the world the way Jesus views the world. And we have a God who is a good heavenly Father who looks down on the powerless and the weak. Jesus who taught and said, When you do this for the least of these, you've done it for me. And we need Jesus' heart on this, and we need to repent for the times that we haven't. Second thing we need to do is that we need to pray. And we need to pray. And you can go, well, it's the classic Christian thing. First repent, then pray. That's what they all say. And it probably won't even do any work. In fact, a lot of people use prayer as a cop-out. But here's why it's important, because when you hear comments like this woman that we just read the comments, you have to understand, it's not a rational argument anymore. It's not just a scientific argument anymore. It is, I believe with all my heart, a demonically afflicted issue. It is a spiritual battle that is going on. There are people that have been blinded You can throw all the science in the world out there and it doesn't matter. And so we need to pray that God's going to do something. We need to pray that God captures the hearts of young women before they walk into abortion clinics. We need to pray that young men will step up, not push women to this and say, no, we're going to do this. I'm going to stand with you. We need to pray that people in the church will move. We need to pray that resources are brought in. And we just need to understand how crazy this situation is. It ha- we have to have prayer on this because when you realize that 38 states actually have homicide rules regarding fetuses, you know that? So that means a woman can be driving to an abortion clinic who's pregnant, be hit with a drunk dri- by a drunk driver, he'll be charged with murder. But if she survives that, if she makes it, say he's just a near miss, the drunk driver just barely misses her, and she goes on about her day, makes it to the abortion clinic, then she can pay a certain fee, and a doctor will actually abort and kill that baby on her behalf. Think about the the lunacy of that. It's totally legal, and then the clinics can profit by selling the parts of that baby to research facilities after that. The very fact that we don't, as a culture, step back and go, are you kidding me? shows that this has to be a spiritual issue. And we have to pray like Daniel prayed. Daniel, Daniel is an unbelievable example of a godly man, and yet here he is praying for the sins of the culture around him as if they were his own. Or you've got Abraham praying for Sodom and Gomorrah. And what do we see? We see God move because of these prayers. We have got, I mean, we should not only pray for those women and pray for the doctors and pray for all this other stuff, but we should pray mercy on our land because of what's going on. Number three, we need to vote. Oh, I told you he was going to get political. This issue has to matter to us when we vote. It has to. I mean... We have to be able to look at our elected officials and candidates and see this issue. It's got to bear weight, like a lot of weight, a ton of weight. And I know people will say that's single issue voting and you're just going to say yes or no to one person based on that. What if they're terrible at their job? But look, we single issue disqualify people all the time. I mean, if a guy was absolutely qualified in every way, just an absolute stellar candidate, an economic whiz that could get America out of its deficit in no time at all, and the problem that he believed was one of the things we need to do is get all the black people out of the workplace. Take away their votes and send every woman home because they're not equal with men. And if we do that, and if you listen to me and vote me in, I could do it. And he's stellar everywhere else, but would you vote for him? Of course not. I hope not. No, you wouldn't. (laughs) But, but not just voting politically, though we have to. Uh, the very fact that we're dealing with the congressional issues now and losing some of them, and the, the judges that are in there, it's, the vote matters. But, but, but also, we should vote with our money. Like if this is important to you, like if you want to see this through the lens the way God does, then have you ever contacted your doctor and asked if they do abortions? Maybe you should. And if they do, maybe you should tell them why you're leaving. I mean, they're done in Medford. I tried to call Planned Parenthood, ask for an appointment, see if I could come in, talk, get some resources. I was honest with them. I wasn't going to be shady. I wasn't coming in with like a spy camera or any of that kind of stuff. Totally blown off. We're too, we're too booked up. That's one of two realities in that. Number one, they're just blowing me off because they knew I was a pastor and they didn't want to, which is totally possible. Number two, they're booked up. And that's sad. So we need to vote. And then the last thing is this we need to be involved. We need to get involved. Um, the Pregnancy Advocacy Center, um, what do you, you changed the name on me, so I get this wrong. It's the Medford Pregnancy Center. Um, Here in town, we have Cindy Bright here with us. She's the president of that organization or director of that organization. She's here um, with a table set up. She can talk with you about the needs that are there. Um, I spent some time with her yesterday afternoon. She said that um, since these Planned Parenthood videos came out, um, the the need and the appointments and the calls and all that stuff have tripled at their office since this stuff came out. Praise God, right? Praise God. But here's the thing: you got to have somebody there to catch them. Like They need help, and I know for a fact that the resource center is always in need of help before these videos came out. So you go to this table, and you ask her, what can I do? Can I donate some time? Can I donate some money? Can I bring some resources there? What can I do here? Because here's the thing, getting involved, and by the way, I already mentioned the guy from Save the Storks is going to be here this weekend. Getting involved is so much more than just like shaking our fist, And getting angry and saying, you guys are wrong, and picketing, and and all this stuff, which can lead to such anger and animosity. The Bible tells us that we are to expose the unfruitful works of darkness. It also tells us that we're supposed to be a light in the world, does it not? And so part of being involved is going, you know what? I've got an empty bedroom in my house. I wonder if there's a young woman who needs a place to go. Part of being involved is, how can I actually make sacrifices of myself to look after those who are weak and in need because that's what Jesus did for me. So I'll skip in and out this week. Or else, bad timing for in and out right? Or I'll skip whatever the case may be. And this week instead, we're gonna buy diapers. And we're gonna drop them off at the pregnancy center. We're gonna go to the Magdalene house in town. And we're gonna do some yard work for them. We're gonna do something to benefit them. It's a home for unwed teenage moms so that they can have their baby, be taught how to care for their baby. It's Catholic-funded, but awesome. I shouldn't even say but. It's just a fantastic thing, right? We've done a lot of work. Just you know, Heritage has done a lot of work with the Magdalene House in town. It's a fantastic organization. Part of being involved is not just exposing and understanding the truth of things, but being the light that's there to catch them. I mean, think of what the book of James says. If you see a guy who's hungry and you just go, God bless you, and go on, and you don't actually meet his needs, what good is that? So, part of being involved is saying, How can we do this? Where can I donate money? How can I get involved in this? Where is a young woman that I can throw an arm around and disciple her? Where's a young man I can grab by the scruff of his neck and say, All right, you got yourself into this, but now you're going to be a man. You made a man decision, now you're going to be a man, but I'm going to walk with you. And I'm going to help you. Getting involved in foster care, getting involved in adoption because we've been adopted. Providing homes for these children. This is what getting involved means. I, I, I have a hard time <laughs> when I look at the scriptures. I, I know I can come heavy on this stuff, so just grace me for a minute. But I have a hard time seeing how we can look at this particular issue and say, I have no role to play here whatsoever. I mean, there's something we can do. There's some sort of grace. I mean, what does it cost to drop off a can- canister of formula? That's a bad example? Formula's expensive, isn't it? Diapers, 10 bucks. But this is important. The biblical call to the Christian is to minister to and look out for what? The least of these. And what could possibly be least than these babies that are ending up in garbage bags? But again, I want to say this. To women in this room or men in this room that have been part of this, this is in your background, you've been here, The things that God has forgiven me of, I could preach just as vehemently against. There is no one in this room that has any right to look down their nose with arrogance or anything towards you. Because we are all graced by God. Weak helpless sinners who have rebelled against God and our sin may be different than yours, but all of our sin has disqualified us from the grace of God and has excluded us from the kingdom of God. And if it wasn't for the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ in our lives, given to us, not because we earned it or because we've done anything to deserve it, simply because he's gracious and he threw his grace on us. If it wasn't for that, then we would have no hope. So our prayer is that you would find that kind of hope, that, that guilt wouldn't have hold on you anymore, that you would be able to hear teachings like this and be able to shake your head in agreement, not in shame because you're like, I know it and I'm sure of it and I agree with it. Thank God Jesus rescued me from that. And if you don't have someone to throw that arm around you, we want to help you find that person. And and one other thing, if anyone in this room is actually thinking about that, I'm begging you to reconsider Please come to the Advocacy Center. Please come to us. Please seek some help. The the, the devil wants you to think that this inconvenience that you have is going to ruin your life. But man, we we never realize how big the check we're about to write is when we deal with him. So I'm begging you, for the sake of the baby you carry and for the sake of your own life, don't listen. Choose life. Choose life. Amen. Um, At this time, if there's any, did we get any questions, Sam? Through here, we have some. This part always scares me. Does the amount of restrictions correspond? Cindy, you might have to help me on some of these, just so you know. Does the amount of restrictions correspond with the number of abortions completed? In other words, does Oregon have the highest abortion rate and Oklahoma the least? Just curious how legislation affects actual abortion rates. Do you know the answer to this, Cindy? So if, for anyone who listens on the podcast later, Oregon leads the nation in abortions per capita. Uh, there's more on the East Coast because the population is so much denser and there's more abortion clinics. Um, but again, something we're number one on that we are not proud of, yeah. Any other questions? What about the morning after pill or plan B? Um, there's some great research that Cindy has for you if you'd like to take a look at this that goes into some of the science behind all of those things. But all of those things are, if I'm not mistaken, I think I read this, Cindy, so I hope you're proud of me here. Um, all of those are, are medicines that prevent the, the fertilized egg, in other words, the, con- the conceived unit, if you will, from settling in the uterus. So, so it's preventing life from getting where life needs to be in order to live. So they're, they're abortive and they're dangerous in many places as well. So um, I would encourage you to look at some of the science behind some of those kind of things for sure. Um, take a look at that, yeah. Next. That's all? What is Heritage doing? Um, Heritage right now is a supporter of the Resource Center. Um, we're actually, uh, that's on the agenda for a board meeting coming up to see about how we can expand our support for the pregnancy center that is in town um we're we are just actually agreed today to buy a table for their big fundraiser that's coming up so um we uh, it's coming up on the week that all the pastors here are going to be out of town um for a conference thing that we're going to or a training thing we're going to um so i'm looking to fill seats at that banquet so if you're interested in representing heritage and going to this fundraising banquet i think it's on October 8th um and being able to hear from this gal that like i told you about this um abortion survivor that's going to be there um we would love to be able to fill those seats um and I say this not unashamedly, if you have a big checkbook, we'd love you to fill that seat um, just on their behalf, right? It is a fundraiser. So uh, um, so we do that. Um, I know my huddle group, for example, has done work with the Magdalene House here in town. Um, so we've done that before. We've also walked, uh, you know, Cindy, I can think of one galley in particular that I walked, you know, my wife and I kind of connected with you through some of that stuff. So um, we're hoping to be able to do more and more um, one-on-one discipleship stuff that takes advantage of groups like the Resource Center. Um, the Magdalene House, I have even more history with, even though I'm closer with Cindy now. I actually, just for years, done work with the Magdalene House. I Actually, one of the most beautiful things I ever got to do over there is I got to do a wedding for one of the young women who was living there, um, who ended up marrying um, the father of the child that she had when he came back from military service. And we had this beautiful wedding right there at the house. It was really, really cool. Um, Cindy? Cindy? Mm-hmm. Uh Was there anyone that had a question they didn't text it in and just wants to ask? This is even scarier because Sam's not screening it now. <laughs> Go ahead. We about prayer. Are we going to sing louder? Or is this something that we do in the body when we gather? Or do we just talk about that? Yeah, well, we're going to pray here in just a minute. That's for sure. Um are going to this is an ongoing thing. We're going to pray without ceasing. So Yeah, you're right. Yeah. We're right. We need to talk about how we can do that. Um, th- this is one of the things, actually, that's that's interesting to bring up too. That I was reading, a, I was reading an article about this today, and they were saying how it's really easy to get all caught up in the fervor of everything when the Planned Parenthood videos are being released every other week. But sooner or later, they're out of videos, and so what happens then? You know, what I mean, does it just die down? And that the Christians do, as you're saying, that need to be committed to the fight long term. You're absolutely right. So, um, so we need to we need to figure out ways to do that. Maybe more ice bucket challenges, right? Uh, you guys remember that this summer? That was a fundraiser that we actually did with the other churches to do that. Maybe we need to, to, to figure some of that out, um, ways to keep that more on the forefront, because um, it's a big deal. You're right. It's a big deal. Um, I don't I don't know the detailed, here step-by-step answer on that, uh, but I hear that. Will we pray? Mm-hmm. Will we commit to praying? And is that something that our body would do regularly? Mm-hmm. quickly? Or are we going to have programs? I don't care about ice buckets. I care about <laughs> prayer. Yeah. You know, I'm just saying. hmm You're going to commit to praying? Nobody? Yeah. yeah. We have good Board of directors guys that are in this room, you guys hearing that? Actually, even the whole elder process thing we got coming up, we need to talk about that. That's right. Every Wednesday at what? Wednesday. Every Wednesday at noon. There's women that gather together there, um, but that doesn't mean the men are off the hook. It's interesting how sometimes this feels like a woman's issue, doesn't it? And it's not. Like like we as men are supposed to be warriors for justice in these things. It absolutely is not. Yes, Sid. To Cindy, the question is: Does government funding, if government funding goes to organizations like Planned Parenthood, is there gun, government funding available to organizations like the Resource Center or Pregnancy Center? Sorry, that name's messing me up every time. But um, so, Cindy. Good. Good. Right? Good. It's easy for us to go, oh, but good. They need the gospel more than the money, right? And God's fabulously wealthy. I don't know if you guys know that. Um, gold is asphalt to God. So uh, yeah. So here's what I want to do. I want to take just a few minutes now. We got ten minutes till your kids get out. Is that right? Is it are they out yet? Nope. I'm told that the Iwanas program out there is very structured. So we got 10 minutes, and so here's what I want to do. Would you just take a moment just to stop on your own and just pray right now? Each of us as individuals, and then then I'll come in and I'll, I'll lead us in uh, kind of corporate prayer, prayer for this uh, issue then. And then also I encourage you to be here this Sunday when um, Jeff Gilbert's here with Save the Storks too, because there's some opportunity there. Um, we actually were able to connect Save the Storks with the local pregnancy center, and um, what they're looking at doing is how could maybe the Medford and Grants Pass Pregnancy Center... Collaborate, get one of those buses made, and they literally, like, they'll go park these things across the street from Planned Parenthood with a big sign on the bus. I mean, these—they're like Mercedes vans. They're—they're super high tech with a sign, free ultrasounds, um, just to get people to come in, and then they can direct them to places and avenues where they can actually uh, um, care for the children that are there. So, so we're trying to see how we can connect Save the Storks with the resource center here in order to get that done. That'd be able to cover both Medford and Grants Pass. That'd be a phenomenal thing. Amen. So, um, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to take just a couple of minutes, bow your heads if you would, and just pray for our nation, pray for our valley, pray for young women, pray for all these, and then I'll close this in prayer. God, we know that all life is just grace from you. And your word says that it's you that hold all things together. So even whether we realize it or acknowledge it or not, Lord, our next breath, Lord, we depend on you for it. So Lord, we're thankful that you are a gracious and loving God. We're thankful that you value life. We're thankful, Lord, that you love us that you created us, that you formed us, that you put something of yourself in us, that we are made in your image. Lord, these are mysteries that we are way too familiar with and we are not, Lord, no longer easily awed by. God, help us to recover the awe at this mystery. Lord, help us to see each other and the unborn the way you do. Lord, help us to have, Lord, that same value towards life, Lord, in a, in a culture and in a world climate where we've been so desensitized. God, I pray that your spirit would move, Lord, in this valley, in this country. But Lord, this is where you've placed us. So, so I pray, God, that you would just move in this valley, Lord, and you would just do a work. And Lord, may that work start in our hearts. Lord, may we be brokenhearted at the reality. Lord, that abortions are being performed right here, that babies are dying right here in this valley. Lord, may we be broken over this and sad over this. May there be genuine sorrow. And Lord, we repent on behalf of our valley. We repent on behalf of our state, Lord. The easiest place in the country to get an abortion, we are shamed, God. And we beg your forgiveness and mercy and grace on this state, Lord, and we pray, Lord, that instead of a, a place where, where those who value abortion look at Oregon as some sort of champion, God, may you make it a champion for you. Lord, you could change things. It's so easy, Lord, for, for people to look at Oregon as being beyond, Lord, um, Christian values. But God, you can do anything. And I pray, God, you would just turn this state to you. And in this issue in particular, God. God. Lord, I I think of your scripture where it says that the blood of one slain cried out to you and you heard it. Lord, how many cries do you hear in our culture? I beg of you, God, that you would do a work. And I know, Lord, that you have chosen to work through your church, that we are the salt and light of the earth. And so, God, I I pray specifically, Lord, as our brothers challenge us to, Lord, what, what will you do with us? How should we as individuals who are the church view this? And then how should we collectively as a church react to the knowledge, Lord, that that the innocent are hurting? I pray, God, you would give vision. I pray, God, that your spirit would prompt us to pray. I pray, God, that we would believe in the prayer, Lord, that it's so easy, Lord, for us, especially many people who have been walking with you for so long, we forget how powerful prayer is. God, help us to remember this matters. God, I pray for the doctors in this valley that perform abortions. And I pray, God, you would break them. That, Lord, they who are scientists in their own right would understand the reality of what's happening every time and would be broken. That they would run to you in repentance, find forgiveness, and change this valley. I pray for young women, Lord, and any women of any age, Lord, who are seeking um, uh, to get out from fear to deal with inconveniences, any of those things, God, I pray that your voice would drown out the voices in the culture around them that say that this is the easy way out. I pray, God, you would bring them into contact, maybe even with people in this very room. And I pray, God, that, that this church would be different, Lord, than, than maybe what so many of us are used to when we think of churches um, who are moving against abortion, I pray, God, that that rather than putting signs in our hands more than anything, we would put others' hands in our hands, Lord, that we might minister to people and care for one another and love others, Lord. I pray, God, that, that there might be opportunities for discipleship between young women and young men and old women and old men, both here in our church and outside. I pray, God, that your word would be on our lips, that your spirit would lead us wherever we go. And I pray, God, that you would move through this church in such a way that that we couldn't imagine that it would be anything other than you moving. And I pray, God, you would save lives even through this church. And God, there's a reason that we're on this topic. There's a reason all these things that have been coming together even lately in the, in the news. God, you're moving, you're doing something. So Lord, for this particular church that we're a part of here, what would you have us do? And God, will you, will you show this to us so that we couldn't miss it even in our own stupidity, God? And may we, may we be empowered by you to follow and to do it. And God, we pray for the day in which our country repents from this awful sin and realizes the reality. And then, God, finally, I pray, Lord, for those who have already been there. I pray that they would understand how much you love them and care. I pray that their image of you, because they're going to see you through us, God. I pray that they would see a gracious, loving God who cares deeply for the babies, but also cares for the moms, that we would love them both, Lord. And I pray, God, that they would understand the depth of forgiveness you have the mercy that's new every day, the victory to walk over sin and shame and our past, Lord, the fact that you can separate us from chains of bondage to our past and set us free, and then, Lord, the beautiful future that you have for us. And so, God, we pray that you would take all of these things and more, Lord, and use them. Lord, do a work in our hearts. Help this not to be another one of those things we just take in and walk away and we're done with but God, what would you have your church do? And then may we respond. I thank you, Lord, for everyone who's here, for the kids and the the different programs elsewhere on campus, Lord, and I just ask, God, that that we would just continue to be molded by your spirit into your image from glory to glory. God, that you would just continue to do a work in our lives, Lord, and we're thankful more than anything for your love and mercy in our own lives, Lord, in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Let me just, in, in closing, Again, Cindy's back there. I I pray you guys would just mob her right now um, with stuff. Go on the website. Look into some different information. Um, But one thing, too, I kind of alluded to to it in the prayer, that remember, being salt and light doesn't just mean throwing salt in other people's eyes. And and a lot of people's understanding of a church being rallied to, to activism against abortion is bullying and picketing and shoot, we've even seen bombings. I mean, there's been all sorts of things done by churches in the name of, of the godly, uh, in the name of, of, of serving God. Um, but but I, my prayer is that I think we're called to show the grace and mercy of God, to be passionate about these things, but to be loving to people. And so I think if we're doing this in such a way that people are feeling scared away from the church, we might stop and make sure we're not doing it wrong. Does that make sense? So let's pray for grace and mercy, but not passivism and, and just, oh, well, at the same time. I mean, kids are dying. And so it, it's difficult to find. There's always tension in some of these sorts of things. And I pray that the Lord would show that to us and that, that, um, that as our brother pointed out, that we would find, Lord, what is it that we're supposed to do even, this, the prayer, how do we pray over these things, and that we'd fight this stuff through to the long haul so that 40 years from now, we get to tell our children, no, we, we were fighting, man, I was there. I was, I was ministering to, to these gals. I was ministering to these young men. I was donating money. We were praying for them, and we were so filled with joy the day that changed. It was one of the best days of our lives. You should have been there, son. It was amazing. I pray that that's our testimony by the grace of God. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, what's next week, Sam? Human sexuality's next week. Oh, yeah, it doesn't get any easier, right? So uh, next week at 6.30, that's where we're gonna be. Hey, I love you guys. God bless you. We'll see you uh, Sunday morning at 10. Have a great week.